Well, several years ago, uh, Pastor Connie uh, shared with me the story of his friend Wayne Barber uh, being invited to preach at a Christian college. Now, if that name, Wayne Barber, sounds familiar to you, uh, Wayne was often featured on the teaching videos uh, with Precepts Bible Studies uh, along with Kay Arthur. And so Wayne was uh, now with the Lord, had a tremendous uh, teaching and preaching ministry. And because of that, he was often invited to speak at various gatherings. Well, one of those invitations took place at a Christian college that was not known for being a place of grace. And uh, one of the many rules at the college they had for male students was they could not have hair over their ears. And this would have been back several years ago, decades ago. There was even a saying at the school, and the saying was this, if you've got hair over your ears, you've got sin in your heart. Now, not only was Wayne a gifted Bible teacher, he had a pretty robust sense of humor. And so upon opening his sermon that day in chapel, he said this. He said, I hear there's a saying around here that if you have hair over your ears, you've got sin in your heart. He said, I have a question. Does that mean if you've got hair over your heart, then you have sin in your ears? He said, everyone laughed except the administrators. Well, in the words of the great prophet, Larry the Cable Guy, I don't care who you are, that's funny, right? And what Wayne was leaning into that day in a humorous way was the idea that external rules could produce a right heart before God. The Christian term for that idea is what's known as legalism. Uh, Holiness is taking serious what God has said, and legalism is adding to what God has said. And when you study the Bible, the classic case of uh, legalism was the ministry of the uh, Pharisees. And so uh, they took the Mosaic Law, which was perfect in precept, And they added all kinds of extra commands on top of the law with the hopes that they would kind of serve as a fence around the law. Here was their line of thinking. If we can add all these extra commands on top of the law and create a barrier between people and the law, then they couldn't violate the law because they couldn't even get close to the law through all these extra commands and this fence. But what it ended up producing instead uh, was self-righteous pride in the heart of those who were trying to enforce all the rules. Aren't you glad there aren't people like that in church anymore? Amen. <laughs> Actually, there are three categories of people in church. Let me introduce you to them today. There is Lloyd the legalist. Uh, he believes that if you follow the rules, God loves you more. He's passionate about making sure other people obey the rules as well. Lloyd believes that God's love is based on your performance and not God's character. There's also licentious Lenny. He believes that because he's saved, he can do whatever he wants. After all, once saved, always saved, right? Any mention of holiness, and Lenny denounces it as legalism. The third person is spirit-filled Seth. No relation to our student ministry director, by the way, all right? He knows that he can't follow all the rules because he's a sinner, and so he's going to yield his life for Jesus because Jesus perfectly obeyed all the rules of the law, and he lives in me, and so now I'm free to obey and to love and to serve Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is going to make a strong case that intimacy with Jesus, this spirit-filled life, is a better way to live than a list of do's and don'ts. So turn with you there in your Bibles, your phones, or your tablets this morning. And since we're Focusing this morning on verses 7 through 18, let me give you the cliff notes on verses 1 through 6. Uh, In verses 1 through 6, Paul is continuing to build his credentials uh, as an apostle so that he can restore trust with these Corinthian believers. They had been getting swayed by false teachers who uh, become known as these super apostles. 
And basically, the super apostles were looking at and bragging about all their external credentials. And the Corinthian believers, they were swayed by that. These guys were impressive. And basically, what Paul's saying, hey, in verse 5, he says, I have no sufficiency in myself. I have no, uh, nothing to offer other than Christ himself. And so Paul begins to tell them that when you're looking for leaders, who you're looking to are people that the Spirit of God is at work in their life despite how unimpressive you may think they actually are. When I read verse 5, uh, basically what Paul is saying is look for character, not charisma. Paul says, I, had, I have no sufficiency other than God, none in myself. When I hear that statement, I always think of the, my favorite quote about ministry from author Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp said this. He said, God doesn't call us to ministry because we're able. God calls us because he's able. And that's where our sufficiency for ministry is. And so, uh, beginning in verse 7, Paul wants these believers to center their confidence around the Spirit's work in them and not on their ability to perform well. Now, I know we're not even to the text yet, but if you're listening, say Amen. If you struggle with nagging guilt and performance-based spirituality, I want you to lock into what Paul is teaching today, all right? And for the rest of you, you can go ahead and take a nap, all right? So we're just going to look at one point this morning. It's kind of a two-part message. So one point this morning, and that's simply this. Be confident that the Spirit can empower you. You don't have to trust in your willpower. You don't have to believe in your ability to obey the rules that the Spirit of God, the Spirit-filled life, can empower you for a life of obedience and spiritual vibrancy. You see, here's the reality for every person in the room. Your confidence for any spiritual con uh, progress is going to come from one of two sources. One, it's going to come from your own willpower. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to get a better list. I'm going to follow the list. I'm going to do these things. I'm not going to do these things. And if I just grit my teeth and just try harder, then I'll make spiritual progress. Or your progress is going to be dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reality is this. Willpower is the wrong choice. I know that from personal experience. You know what I've learned? I've lost uh, about 10 or 12 pounds. Very few people have encouraged me. I'm not bitter. I just want to say that, all right? But here's what I know, Tasha, I'm working out hard. Here's what I know. I am one donut shop away from all that being derailed, amen? When you see the blinking light at Krispy Kreme that says hot now, that might as well be a neon sign alerting you this is the portal to hell, am I right? But more importantly, I don't only know that by personal experience, I know that because the Word of God says that. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 5 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in himself. And so the illustration Paul's going to use to help us understand that is a contrast in verses 7 through 11 through the Mosaic Law in the Old Covenant and the Spirit-filled life that's available in the New Covenant, right? So let's look at verses 7 through 11 this morning. Verse 7, he says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's a description of the law, the ministry of righteousness, that's the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness uh, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For what if or for what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, let me reference something we talked about last week, which is how to study your Bible. So if you've ever taken a class on inductive Bible study, uh, you'll know the first principle of studying the Bible is the principle of observation. Where you just don't read through the text quickly, you're reading slowly, trying to observe uh, certain phrases and things, uh, figures of speech and words that are repeated. And so in verses 7 through 11, here's a little pop quiz. In verses 7 through 11, there is a word that shows up 10 times in five verses. What is that word? Now, if you've ever wanted to yell back at the preacher once uh, in a church, this is your opportunity, right? Does anybody know the word that's repeated 10 times in five verses? Glory, right? First time some of you said glory in church, you're Pentecostal, all right? And what the Bible says, uh, this, in Bible study methods is this. Is that anytime something is repeated, God's not stuttering. Anytime something's repeated, it's for the sake of emphasis. That's why it's there over and over. So Paul talks about glory in terms of the old covenant and in the new covenant. Now, when we think of the old covenant, think before Jesus came to earth. Think laws and rules and, and commandments. The Mosaic Covenant had over 600 laws in it. Those laws were grouped into three categories. There were the civil laws, there were ceremonial laws, and there were the moral laws. And that covenant, those laws, governed the life of Israel and their covenant relationship with God and their covenant relationship with each other. Now, the civil and the ceremonial laws were made obsolete according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. The moral laws of God are still binding because they reflect God's unchanging character. But when Christ came, he says, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. He said, I've come to fulfill it. He met every single requirement of the law perfectly because we could not. And so when we receive him, we receive that righteousness credited to our accounts. And when we think of the, the moral laws of God, often we think of the Ten Commandments, right? If you read the Bible, if you're reading through the Bible, you may have just passed through Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, what does it tell us? That there, uh, God gave the Ten Commandments to Charlton Heston. Amen? Right, right. Google it. You'll find out. And when the law, which often gets a bad rap, but it was, listen, it was morally perfect in precept, the law was. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was man's ability to obey the law. And so when he came down, what it says, the glory of God was so present on his character. And the glory of God was present in the precepts of God's law. And so when Moses comes down, what do we learn? We read scripture. That he's been in receiving the the part of the law, he's been in the presence of God, and the presence of God, the glory of God, is literally shining on his face. It's what theologians call the Shekinah glory of God, that his face is so radiating with the glory of God that he had to put a veil on because they could not look upon his face and the glory that it displayed. Let me give you a definition of glory since it's used 10 times in five verses. The glory of God is the beauty of his spirit. It is not a aesthetic beauty or a material beauty. It is the beauty that emanates from his character. And sometimes we're down in law. Law's bad, law, you know, rules, all that kind of stuff. It's bad, wrong, all those kind of things. But Paul's saying, hey, listen, the glory of God was there in the old covenant, but it was veiled or it was limited. Access to the glory of God was limited. So not only was there a veil on Moses' face, limiting the glory of God, their encounter with it. There was a veil in the temple. 
That they couldn't go in there and access the presence of God. You had to have a priest go into the temple and access the presence of God on your behalf. And so what Paul is telling me is saying, hey, yes, there was glory. It was limited or veiled in the old covenant, so let's not be down on it. He said, but, but you need to understand something. That, that's not a way to live because the glory that's available to you in the new covenant is far superior You need to lay hold of this truth is what he's telling them. He said, through Jesus Christ, you have full access to God. You don't need a priest anymore to mediate on your behalf. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is but one mediator between the man and Christ Jesus, right? Between God, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, that's a lot of theology about covenants and glory and all those kinds of things. So, we've answered the what Paul's talking about. Let's also answer the question, so what? And the answer to that question is exciting. So, so what that, that in the new covenant, this glory is made available to me? So what that there's a, been a shift here and I can access the presence and the glory of God in a more full way? So what? And the answer to that question is exciting. I'm assuming that you got out of bed this morning and threatened your kids on the way here because you want to be reminded of the glory of God in worship and taught about how to access the glory of God in preaching. And so what Paul is saying to the believers at Corinth and us today is that the Spirit of God inside of us, which is unique in the new covenant, empowers us to display the glory of God in ways that people under the old covenant of the law could not do. So so here's why, all right? In the old covenant... Uh, The Spirit of God didn't indwell people. The Spirit of God would come upon them and empower them for works of service. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we experience that at salvation, Scripture says. But after we're baptized into salvation through the Spirit, then the Spirit of God indwells us. They didn't have that in the Old Covenant. It would come upon them, but in the same way, it could also leave them. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance. Here's what he said. Do not cast me from your presence, listen to this, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to know this, that if the Spirit of God is taken from you, then your ability to radiate and experience the glory of God is going to be limited or diminished. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, in the new covenant, the potential of your life to display the glory of God, it is as unlimited as Christ himself. Is it just me or is that exciting? I'm looking at your faces, it's just me, all right? That's exciting, right? That, 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 that what Moses experienced in coming down the, the mountain of God, the Shekinah glory of God, that I have access to that same glory even in a greater way because of the Spirit of God living inside of me. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. What's he say? He said, will not the ministry of the Spirit, listen to this, have even more glory? Verse 9, for there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. That's the law. The purpose of the law was to point people to Jesus. The Bible says it was to be a tutor to point people to Christ. He said, that's the purpose of the law, to show us, I I can't do this. He said, that's the whole point. That you would realize I can't obey this and place yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. So when he says the ministry of condemnation, he's describing the law. He says the ministry of righteousness, that's the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Now, let me ask you a question. Does not living that way, the spirit-filled life, 
sound like a better way to live the Christian life than trying to obey a list of do's and don'ts in your own strength. Let me take it a step further. There are only two outcomes in legalism. Did you know that? Pride and shame. Pride because you think that you perfectly are obeying the rules or at least you're doing it better than everyone else. Or shame because you're painfully aware that in fact you are not obeying all the rules. That's the only two outcomes of that. But the good news of the gospel is this. There's a better way to live. Paul says there's a better way to live. There's hope for the glory of God being displayed through your everyday ordinary life. You're not relegated to a boring life of dry, powerless duty. You don't have to waste your life living for your own glory, that the Spirit of God can empower you to live and experience the glory of God. Now, there's a catch. While the Spirit of God indwells every follower of Jesus Christ positionally in the new covenant, living the Spirit for life does not happen automatically. Let me repeat that. The Spirit of God indwells every Christian positionally in the new covenant, but it doesn't mean you're going to live the Spirit-filled life automatically. I'm reading a book on prayer right now by H.B. Charles, and he tells a story about the Spirit-filled life and prayer, and they said a story about D.L. Moody, and uh, someone asked him, they said, D.L., they said, aren't you filled with the Spirit? And he replied, yes, but I leak. Amen. Right? And I know that phrase, spirit-filled life, it sounds, it sounds mystical or, or charismatics. And, and I know the Baptists, I know we're afraid of the Holy Ghost, that whole thing, right? Like, what is that? And so let me give you a different term, the spirit-yielded life or the spirit-controlled life. And here's what that is. The spirit-filled life is not where you get more of the spirit. It's where the spirit gets more of you. When you're saved... The Spirit of God fully indwells you. The Holy Spirit is not given to us like layaway. Anybody remember layaway? Praise God. Listen, in my house growing up, I don't know if this is true or not. I hope there's a Kmart in heaven. Amen? Because you know what I know? A dollar down and a dollar a week, and it's going to be a Merry Christmas at our house. Praise God. My mom growing up bought everything on layaway. You don't get the Holy Spirit on layaway. The problem isn't that we don't have more of the Spirit. The problem is we're not appropriating all that the Spirit offers us. Here's what all of us, me included, have to wrestle with. I want you to listen to this. Here's what we all have to wrestle with. You and I, you've got all of Jesus that you want. You've got all of Jesus that you want this morning. Listen, Jesus is not stiff-arming anyone. Jesus is staying there with arms open wide saying, hey, I, I'm ready. Come on. We've got all of Jesus that we want in this spirit-filled life. And so Paul is desperately trying to convince these believers in us not to trust in self-sufficiency, but to tap into the Spirit's power if you want to live and display the glory of God. Here's what he's saying. Don't live like an old covenant person when you've been invited to a new and better covenant. And you don't have to wonder is the spirit-filled life a better way to live than the old Mosaic law? Look back at the text. He, I mean, he just lays out the case. He says uh, in the old covenant, verses 7 and 8, it's a ministry of death, and the new covenant is a ministry of spirit and life. 
Verse 9, the old covenant leads to condemnation. The new covenant leads to righteousness. Verse 11, the old covenant has a temporary and veiled glory, whereas the new covenant has permanent and unveiled glory. And I know that you like practical Bible teaching, so I don't want to answer the question of what and so what. I want to answer the question, how? Because when I hear Paul teaching this, I'm, listen, I'm signing up, right? That sounds like such a better way to live than this external, self-righteous, obeying the rules, do's and don'ts, legalistic, old. Covenant. This is such a more attractive and enticing way to live. And so how do we actually do that? And I want to answer that question on two fronts. Number one, how do we live the spirit-filled life? And number two, how do we know that we're, we're not? So how do we live this spirit-filled life? Well, listen, the spirit-filled life, I don't want to overcomplicate this. The spirit-filled life is accomplished by pursuing intimacy with Jesus Christ, not obedience. The practical tools to do that is the ordinary spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, service, solitude, scripture memory, scripture meditation, corporate worship, close relationships with other people, all those things. I'm abiding in Christ. The Bible says in John chapter 15, verse 5, that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Nothing. That's the verse. Every morning I wake up, I meditate on that verse before I get out of bed. Hard to meditate sometimes. Tasha snores like a freight train. I just want to share that, all right? And I remind myself every morning before I get out of the bed, apart from him, I can do nothing. But in him I bear much fruit. And so we pursue intimacy with Christ in this spirit-filled life. Now, I want you to listen closely, all right? There's a phrase we've used often, often, often. And, and when you first hear it, it sounds counterintuitive, but just hang with me, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. Intimacy, not obedience, is the goal of the Christian life. Intimacy, not obedience, is the goal of the Christian life. Obedience is not the goal, it's the overflow Making obedience as the goal is to be a new covenant Christian living like an old covenant follower of the law. And I can prove that principle to you. Now, here's what, when people hear that reason, it sounds counterintuitive. It's just almost we're holding up disobedience, right? And, and I don't know about you, I don't need any help with that, right? I just naturally gravitate towards that in my wicked heart. So obedience is not the goal of the Christian life. Intimacy is, obedience is the overflow of intimacy. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive, listen to the Bible, okay? Good source for truth, right? Galatians chapter five, verse 16. Here's what he says. But I say to you, walk in the spirit and, now that word and there, that's important. We believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. So every single word, phrase, tense matters there. And the reason the word and is there is to show you there's a cause and effect between two separate things. That's why and is in there. So what's he say? But I say to you, walk in the spirit and, that's the cause, here's what the effect will be, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you get that? He doesn't say, hey, if you don't want to gratify the desires of your flesh, if you don't live sinfully, then try really hard not to sin. That's not what he says, is it? He says, if you don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh, if you want that to be the effect, then what causes that is to walk in the Spirit, that as you pursue this Spirit-filled life, then two things happen. Number one, you get a taste of the glory of God. And when you get a taste of the glory of God, guess what? It lessens your appetite for sin. 
What you realize is sin is fool's gold. And the glory of God is the real deal. And you're walking in the Spirit and emanating the glory of God. He says when you do that, then cause and effect, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's the other thing. Listen, the Spirit-filled life, it gives me power to obey. Gives me power to obey. Let me read it to another different translation. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then cause and effect, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature expresses. There's cause and effect in both those things. Is hey, if you live this spirit-filled life, then you won't give in to the flesh. You're describing the cause and effect, and the desired effect is do not do their sinful desires, which should be the desire of every Christian. Then the key to that is not trying hard. The key to that is not gritting your teeth and and coming up with a better list of rules and, and, oh man, I blew it and I'm not gonna do that again and I need to put this rule in play. He says, no, 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 that's not the way this works. He says, pursue Jesus and the spirit-filled life and when you do that, then cause and effect, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's how that works. I've shared this illustration before. Anybody ever not heard the story of my neighbor and his grass? Anybody not heard that story? God bless you, it only takes one, right? <laughs> I had a neighbor, and his name was Sean. And Sean had a putting green for a yard. You know what I'm talking about? I had a weed field. And I used to look at Sean's yard with sinful envy in my heart. And I was confident. I had spent more money than Sean. I'd had my yard reseeded. I'd had it sliced seeded. I had uh, treatments out there. I'd have them come and spray extra treatments. I'd have grub stuff in the fall. I'd, and all these kinds of things. But still, weeds everywhere. And finally, one day, Sean's out there in his yard, right? And I just thought, I'm giving into my pride. I'm going to go over across the street and I'm going to ask Sean, hey, why does your yard look like that? Look at my yard. Full of weeds, here's a putting green. And so I began to tell him, I said, Sean, your, your yard looks great. And he said, I've been working my I see you out there, right? And I said, but the, the deal is, I've got a ton of weeds. You've got hardly no weeds. And he just laughed. He said, well, tell me what you're doing. I said, I got weed control and this, and we've got and pull weeds. Okay. He said, oh, he said, Here, here's the deal, Brad. He said, here's your problem. He said, your problem is you're spending all your time trying to get rid of weeds. He said, I don't spend any time trying to get rid of weeds. I said, well, look at your, there's no weeds in there. He said, yeah. He said, I spend all my time focused on growing grass. He said, because when your grass is thick, it chokes out the weeds. He said, stop worrying about pulling weeds and start worrying about growing grass. Now, what's that got to do with the text? What he's saying here is, hey, if you want to get rid of the weeds of sin in your life, then pursue the spirit-filled life. Focus on the spirit-filled life, and then cause and effect, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's how this works. And I want to answer the second how question. How do we know if we're not living this spirit-filled life? And I think that's an important thing. Listen, no, nobody on purpose is, no Christian is openly professing, right? Hey, I'll take the non-spirit-filled life behind door number two, Bob. But yet... Lots of people do, and lots of people were, and Paul's addressing that. And so what happens is we're either unaware that there's a better way to live, or we've given into the pride of self-righteous legalism, 
or we've experienced a, a leak, to quote D.L. Moody. So here's some signs that you're not experiencing life in the Spirit. It's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a helpful list. Uh, unbelief. You just keep finding yourself battling unbelief over and over. It's not always uh, capital U, like I don't believe there's a God. It's sometimes it's often lowercase u. Uh, this is what God says about this, but, but I don't know that I fully believe if I do that, it's gonna turn out the way that I think it's gonna turn out. Unbelief. The Bible says do this and this will happen. And you say, I know what the Bible says, but I'm gonna do this. That's unbelief. Disobedience. Poor prayer life. No desire for Bible study. No appetite for the things of God. Legalistic attitude, critical spirit, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, frustration, aimlessness, worry, discouragement, loss of love for God and others. And here's a big one. No power to change long term. I keep telling God, I'm never going to do that again. And it's sure enough, I'm like what the Old Testament describes, I'm like a dog returning to its vomit. There I am again, doing what I know is gross, right? You know this in the Bible, did you? You're welcome. Matter of fact, this is, these patterns are so serious. The Bible says that an individual who professes to be a Christian but who continues to practice sin should realize he may, in fact, not be a Christian at all. So what 1 John chapter 2, chapter 3 says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. I used to have an older guy who attended my first church, and he would say, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I've had my toes stepped on. In pastoral ministry, there's a fine line between challenging people spiritually and beating the sheep. And I just want to confess, I've taken a couple whacks with staff, amen, over the years, especially when I was younger. This guy grew up in a beat the sheep church, lots of emphasis on obeying the rules and little teaching on how to cultivate an intimate relationship with Jesus or the spirit-filled life available to us in the new covenant. He lived by the phrase, if you ain't feeling guilty, then you ain't godly. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you like that? And there's a good guilt. So what the old timers used to call conviction. Conviction is God's mercy in your life, God trying to rescue you from destroying your life through sin. So I'm not down on, on conviction, Right? But just this short-term motivating, obey the rules, beat people up, guilty kind of a thing, it doesn't lead to long-term transformation. My experience is this, guilt lasts about as long until I get to the parking lot. So that's what he'd say, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I leave feeling guilty. And I just said, hey, there, there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. Listen, in the New Covenant, we have all the resources of the Spirit. Cultivate that. Now, here's a question. Why would anyone promote anything other than that. Why would anyone promote this old covenant, rules-based, external righteous kind of religion when the life of the Spirit, listen to the text, he says, it is far better to live this way, to display the glory of God. So why would anyone promote that instead of the freedom in the Spirit-filled life? Why would people offer an old covenant faith when the power of the Spirit is available in the new covenant of grace, all right? So everybody listen, here's why, here's why. Because there's a fear that if you teach people about the freedom of the spirit-filled life, people will use that freedom to sin. I remember teaching a series on grace in my first church, and, and I looked out there, and <laughs> while I'm preaching, there's a lady out there doing this. Very encouraging, amen? Very encouraging. 
Like I just thought at some point in time that was going to progress to. <laughs> and so after church, she says, hey, I, I just want to share something with you. If you keep preaching grace and don't offer people clear boundaries, you watch and see people are going to live like the devil. A lot of fun at parties. I just want to share a lot of, a lot of fun. And so the fear is this. If you preach the spirit-filled life and not these rules and, and the guardrails of the law and these rules that keep people from going off the rails spiritually, there's a freedom uh, in that. But the reality is, what does the Bible say? No, no, no. The key to, to not gratifying the desires of your flesh is not to set up clear and more restrictive guardrails. The key to not gratifying the desire of the flesh is to pursue the spirit-filled life. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You see, when people get a taste of the spirit-filled life, it exposes sin for what it is, that it cannot keep its promises. That there's so much more freedom and power in this spiritual life. But it's not freedom to, to do whatever you want. It's freedom to love and serve and obey Jesus Christ. Listen, if you think that it's freedom to sin, you're not free at all. The Bible says you're a slave to sin. You cannot break free from its power. But in the new covenant, praise God, there is a power inside of me causing me to want what I would not want and empowering me to obey what I would not obey. And when I get a taste of that glory, then sin pales in comparison, praise God. That's what he's describing. Two Pentecostals in the room. The rest of you are backslidden Presbyterians, all right? And I want you to hear me clearly. Sin will destroy your life. And so if you think I'm promoting this lawless, do whatever you want kind of, kind of freedom, listen, sin will destroy your life. Any pastor who's afraid of preaching, I just love people, I don't want to preach on sin because I just love people. Listen, he doesn't love people, he loves being popular. So just to be clear, I'm not a fan of sin. But what I am a fan of is teaching people that the key to avoiding sin is not trying really hard to obey the rules like the old covenant. It's living the spirit-filled life in the new covenant because it will empower you to do what you could not do under the old covenant. Quote Adrian Rogers, holiness isn't the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. Obedience is not the goal of the Christian life. It's the overflow. The goal is the Spirit-filled life. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The gospel is not about just getting us to heaven. It's about reorienting the affections of our hearts in the waiting, causing us to want what we would not want and obey what we would not obey. Now, what will happen if you live this way? What will happen if you live this way? Raise your hand if you want to find out. What will happen? Come back next week and I'll tell you, all right? <laughs> Let's pray together this morning. Would you bow your heads? If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then right now in your seat this morning, you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can enter into this new covenant that's available. You can have full access to God, but that only comes through Jesus Christ because your sin has separated you from God. 
And so today, if you've not received Christ, then your access to God is cut off. And I can't think of a scarier thing in the world. But the good news of the gospel is this, that today if you'll confess your sins, if you'll repent of them, to have a desire to turn from them, and if you'll receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as your Lord and Savior, then once again, the access to God between you and God can be restored. Would you receive Jesus Christ? Would you enter into this new covenant by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? For those of you who are saved, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you need to confess and repent of a prideful, legalistic, critical spirit? Do you need to confess and repent of trying to live the Christian life in your own willpower. And if you'll confess and repent of that, then here's the good news. On the other side of that repentance is an ocean of God's grace. Not just forgiving you of your sin, but empowering you, sanctifying grace, empowering you to obey. And so today, would you just confess and repent of that legalistic, critical, self-righteous, And today, would you just tell the Lord by faith, Lord, from this day forward, I'm going to pursue this spirit-filled life. Lord, from this day forward, I'm going to make intimacy with Jesus the goal of my life, not obedience. Lord, from this day forward, all these times I've battled with sin and unbelief, Lord, I need your help. I'm a part of this new covenant and I'm trying to live as if I'm still in the old covenant. Would you just pray by faith today, Lord, let me lay hold of the glory of new covenant, spirit-filled living. Would you pray that prayer today? Father, we're grateful that you never leave us how you found us. And so, Lord, I pray today for every person struggling, trying really hard to obey, discouraged, defeated, unable to change, dominated by worry, guilt, shame, disobedience. God, I pray today they would, in faith, commit themselves to receive the truth of the new covenant and that today they would live this spirit-filled life. They'd make intimacy with Jesus the goal of their life. And Father, for the change that will take place in their life, we thank you in advance. And so Lord, as we leave this place, may people who encounter us encounter the glory of God that emanates from our life in a world marred by darkness and brokenness. God, may the glory of God shine out of our lives, not because we're glorious, but because the Spirit of God inside of us is causing us to radiate the beauty of God's character to a world that desperately needs to see it. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Amen.